Well, it's preaching time. Amen? Let's stand and join to the Bible, Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20. And uh, we are, we're going to look at the millennium, the true millennials. Amen? The millennium, millennial, true millennial Christians. Amen? <clears throat> yep, you're going to be a millennial Christian during the millennium. Amen? And I'm just glad to tag you, everybody in during the millennium is going to be a fundamental Baptist. Amen. They'll all be fundamental Baptists. They're all KJV. There's only one version of the Bible, KJV. Amen. They all believe in soul winning. You know, and we won't have any of these the theological. They're all premillennial. Okay. They're going to say we were right when we get there. Amen. And we're going to read about that. Revelation chapter 20, <clears throat> verse 1. Revelation 20, verse 1. By the way, every time John says, and I saw, can you imagine the privilege he had to see the things that he saw? Amen. And he said, and I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones and they that sat upon them and judgment was given unto them and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and they shall reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, and shall go out to deceive the nations which are on the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth, encompassed the city of the saints about, and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and forever. Now, I've alluded to this. We're going to look at the millennium tonight. And just for correction, so you understand tonight, the word millennium is not in the Bible. Just like the word rapture is not in the Bible. But it is a name, maybe you can call it a moniker, a name that describes what is mentioned six times in these ten verses. One thousand years. But a phrase or word that is used to describe what we're talking about is kingdom. When Jesus taught his disciples how to pray in Matthew chapter 6, he said, our Father, he said, now, this is a model. This is not to what you're to pray every time. It's not to be a repeated, a vain repetition, if I can say that. But he gave them a model how to pray. He gives us a model how to pray. He said, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come. And I found a fitting title for tonight, and there are many titles I could have used out of this, even this passage here tonight, is kingdom come. The kingdom's come. A prayer request we're to pray for. We're to pray, Lord Jesus, come, Maranatha. We're to pray, kingdom come. We're to pray, God, I'm anxious for the kingdom. Well, we'll be priests of God and of Christ and we'll be co-regents with him. That's an amazing thought. I don't know about you, but it's an amazing thought that the Lord would give us to be privileged of being co-regents with him. And tonight we want to look at this time frame which you and I will share it if you're saved. Amen? Of reigning with our Lord 1,000 years. I'm excited about this passage because I'm excited about what the future is. Our world is so messed up. It is so messed up. I don't know if there's a phrase you can use that's more, uh, that elaborates further, that's a stronger adjective than the fact it's just messed up. The bomb that went off in Beirut, how, how in the world could you have 3,000 pounds, 3,000 tons 3,000 tons of ammonium nitrate sitting at your dock for almost seven years and not do anything about it. That's, that's literally a bomb waiting to explode, amen? And the devastation, the, bomb, the impact of the bomb was felt as much as 18 miles away at the airport, the Beirut airport, and the Capitol Palace there in Beirut, <coughs> hundreds killed. Thousands injured, many maimed. Our world's messed up. Our world is messed up. But I want to tell you, there's hope. The hope is through Jesus. Let's pray tonight as we learn, because there's a lot of doctrine here, as we learn, we pray that God would stir us. Father, tonight, Thank you for the word of God. I'm reminded that in Revelation it says, Blessed is he that readeth the words of this prophecy. <clears throat> and the Bible says, Blessed and holy is he that is part in the first resurrection. Thank you, Lord. We'll be part of that first resurrection. And as you did on the day of Pentecost, descend on us, not for an indwelling, because we know we have that indwelling at the moment of conversion but descend upon us for enlightenment. Descend upon us tonight that the Spirit of God, wherever this message is being heard and watched, would reprove of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We're nobody, Lord. We humble ourselves before you tonight, asking that the Spirit of God would speak to us and work in us in a very special way, be glorified tonight in every heart and life. Save someone tonight who's not sure they're saved. Save them tonight. Help correct someone who's perhaps that they have read something that confused them and have them on a, a different platform in terms of where they believe about prophecy. And help them, Lord, to get Scripture correct tonight. Give us courage. Remind us tonight we have so little time. And we thank you for what you'll do this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You may or may not know the name Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts was a pastor in London during the 1700s. 
Some of those old, old patriarchs of the faith, if I can say that, they were talented. They, they were rugged. They made a do with little. I want to inspire some parents tonight about Isaac Watts as we get into this message. Isaac Watts learned to read and write at a very young age. At the age of seven, Isaac Watts began writing poetry. I could like a little bit of poetry every now and then. When he graduated from college, he began writing hymns. And there's a little bit of a, a talent and a mindset you've got to have for writing hymns. It's kind of like preaching. You better, either you're called or you're not called. Amen. He started pastoring a little congregation in London. In 1719, Isaac Watts wrote a hymn that you and I are very familiar with. It's a seasonal hymn in terms of when it's sung. It's sung predominantly during Christmas. Actually, it's one of my favorite Christmas hymns. It's Joy to the World. Joy to the World has been positioned for years as a Christmas hymn. But Joy to the World, when it was written by Isaac Watts, was not written with the intent of it being celebrating the first advent of our Lord. It was written based upon some thoughts God gave him from Psalms 98, because if you read Psalms 98, towards the back end of it, it talks about a joyful people, and it's really, really about the millennium. And I want you to listen to the words, the lyrics, and stanzas tied into joy to the world is so we can understand a little bit where Isaac Watts was going. Listen to what he said. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Now, you can, you can kind of interpret this, well, that's talking about the first advent of our Lord. You could say that. But he's really talking about, if you read Psalms 98, the idea there is the, is the second coming of Christ leading to his millennium. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing. Stanza number two, joy to the world. Listen to this. The Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks and hills and plains, repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy. Now, we saw this last week, and I'll allude to a little bit this tonight. Isaiah 35 talks about the wilderness setting where it will blossom and bloom. Notice this, stanza number three. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. That kind of ties in with Isaiah 35. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. Then, stanza number four. <coughs> he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. That's the righteous reign of Jesus Christ during the millennium. And the wonders of his love and the wonders of his love. Tonight, we are studying what some have called in your studies the golden age or the millennium, or as I've entitled tonight, Kingdom Come. Six times, verses 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, the phrase 1,000 years is mentioned. It is the answer to the prayer of thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Millennium means 
thousand years. We're looking at the 1,000 year reign of Christ. Now, right here in the beginning, let me, let me just allude to it. I'm not going to get into it. It's confusing. It's very deep. Frankly, there's only one right position. But there are three basic positions about the millennium. Three basic positions about the millennium, okay? The first position I want to tell you about very simply is called being amillennial. Now, amillennial is when you add the, the letter A before millennial. It basically means no millennium. Those who hold to an amillennial view interpret the prophecies of Revelation as being symbolic. They spiritualize everything that's there. They do not believe there's a literal millennium. They believe that the, um, the promises concerning Israel in the Old Testament, uh, they take those promises that are specific to Israel, they spiritualize them and, and interpret it as the church fulfilling them. That's wrong interpretation. Okay? Some of you have, and I have it, uh, the pulpit commentary set. I, I have a set. Uh, I'll probably donate, donate actually, I think two sets possibly. I'm probably going to donate it to the church. I'm, I'm looking forward to converting a room and donating a number of books to the church that we can have as a church library here that we can use. I think I've got a lot of good books here. I've got, I've got maybe 15 to 17 books on prayer. I want to donate to the church and give to them. They've been read. They're, they're very good books and things and, uh, of that nature. But, but uh, the pulpit commentary, if you read some of their things in the Old Testament, some of those old writers and some of the old, I'd call them theologians, uh, they, they held to an amillennial view because that's how they interpreted Scripture there. Now, now that they were wrong, unfortunately, but let me tell you about, about some of them that they hold the position there was no millennium. That would include men like, uh, uh, perhaps like John Wesley and Jonathan Edwards, Martin Luther. I'm not much a Martin Luther person. I, I'm not much of a, uh, you know, I thank God for his prayer life, but I don't read anything having to tie with Martin Luther. I'm a little bit, little bit leery about some of those, those reformers and things. They, they came out of the Catholic Church. By the way, Baptists did not come out of the Catholic Church. Okay? You ought to say amen to that. You guys tell me how many people amen on that right now. But we, did, we, did, we didn't come out. We, Jesus started our church. Amen? Jesus started our church. That's right position. That's right theology, okay? But even men like Matthew Henry, Adam Clark, and Albert Barnes, sometimes you'll read some of their things. They, they, they held, to, they held to, a, uh, to that, we call them pre-terrorists. And uh, some, of, some of them, you know, they just had different interpretation of things and how they interpreted things and so on. I'm not getting all that tonight, but we do not hold to an amillennial position. Then there's a second position called postmillennial. Post means after. Now, postmillennials believe that the second coming of Christ, his rapture, second coming, happened after millennial. Now, they believe that things are going to get better. And uh, then Jesus will come. And, um, you know, which it's not getting better. Actually, there, there are very few people that hold a post-millennial view right now because, because the world is not getting better. We've been through two world wars. We've had a Korean war. We've had a Vietnam war. We've had the Gulf War. And so we have a number of things like that, okay? The third view is what we believe, we hold. This is our, what we believe, and we indicate this even, and I believe in our articles of faith. We are pre-millennial. Say that at home, pre-millennial. I'm not sure how that translates in Chinese. I'm not sure how that translates in Tagalog. I'm not sure how that translates in Spanish. I'm not sure how that translates, but I know one thing. In English, it means this. We are premillennial, amen? And premillennial means this. The church will be raptured. There'll be seven years tribulation. We return with our Lord Jesus Christ at his second coming, and he establishes his millennial kingdom. That's what we believe the Bible teaches, chronologically here, okay? And we're going to see that this evening. 
There probably is not as much preaching about the millennium as there should be. Uh, one of our members is here tonight. They said, I pulled up your notes from several years ago when you preached it. I said, wow, somebody remembered I preached this before, amen? And uh, thank God for that. But we are premillennial. We're going to look at that tonight. We're going to look at the rulership of our Lord Jesus Christ for 1,000 years. Now, I'm going to preach it tonight from the context of Revelation 20, verses 1 to 10. So if you're looking for a very extensive message on things, I'm not going to give you that. I'm going to give you a capitalization tonight. And one of these days, what you'll do is you, we want you to sign up. We want you to go through the Bible Institute. We're going to start back up our Bible Institute. We'll be talking to our men about this. But starting back up, one of our staff guys will teach it. And by the way, our staff guys will be teaching Very competent Bible teachers and preachers. Very competent in what they're doing. They'll be very, very helpful to you on that. And they've studied hard on that. And, and they'll tell you more about those things. But tonight, I'm going to give you a capitalization about all that. Okay? So if you're ready, Tonight. Number one, I want you to see about the millennial kingdom. Number one, I want you to see Satan's restraint. Now, Jesus, we've come with him. We saw that last week. By the sword of his word, he's defeated the enemy. He's slain them. The carrion of the sky, the birds... They've consumed all the flesh of those who've been defeated, so the earth is cleaned up. There's no decaying flesh there. I believe, by the way, that's what God did during the flood. He kept Noah on there for a period of time on the ark, because you have to think about the population of the world. I read some commentators on that and trying to get an idea of what they thought the population were. There's some that think that the population of the world could have meant as, been as much as one billion people. I'm not sure about that, but they said it could have been as much as one billion people by that time. Whatever it was, there was a lot of rotting flesh on the, on the waters. Amen? What did God do with it? I believe he sent the birds down to take care of that. It's what he created them for. And then in verse 19 of chapter 19, he took the beast and the false prophet and he cast them, in verse 20, to the lake of fire. So the enemies have been defeated. The false prophet and the beast are cast in the lake of fire. God is not done. There's still Satan. And in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 20, we see the Lord dealing with Satan. Now notice the first thing he wants to remind us of is in verse 2 of Satan's character. This angel comes down from heaven. He has a key in his hand, and keys are very important in the book of Revelation. The key is mentioned in chapter 1. The Lord Jesus Christ said, I have the keys of death and hell. Later on, I think it's in chapter 9, an angel comes down, with that same keys, the Lord has given him that key. And he opens up the bottomless pit because this is the second time the bottomless pit is mentioned. And a horde of demons come out to afflict the world. This angel comes down with the key in his hand and a great chain in his hand. I want you to envision that, okay? I'm right-handed, so I'm going to imagine that he's right-handed as well. He has the key in his right hand, this great chain in his left hand. And he's coming after Satan. Before he tells us all about that, how he, cap, how he deals with Satan's restraint, notice verse 2. He laid hold on the dragon. Now, how do you lay hold on something? Well, I'll give you an example. 
One of our, one of our staff members is a celebrity. He was on the news this week. Amen? It was on ABC News, and thank God it wasn't because he went to jail. Amen? Amen? He's here right now, and he's pretty embarrassed I'm using because I didn't ask him for permission. Amen? But the Oakland police had an incident a few miles away from the church, and they had a police dog, a canine, that got loose. And this church member is very diligent about checking the news, and he looked on his phone, he saw next door that they put a message out there that the Oakland police, their dog, was loose. And so our church member was up early, and thank God for all my church members, all my church members and church staff are up early, and he went to walk his dog. As he walked his dog, he saw a dog run by. It looked like it fit the description of that, of that dog that, that the Oakland police called about, and he went and trailed it. And uh, I don't think he put his hands on it because he probably would have got bit, amen, you know. But he was on the loose, and, and, he, and he got the description to the police, and he laid hold of it. Now, he came as close as you can if you went to what the Bible says here. He laid hold on it, okay? Laying hold on something is you get a hold of it, okay? You grab it. Now, I'm not sure who this angel was. It could be Michael the archangel because we're, we're told that Michael contended with, with the devil in the past. But I want you to notice, as he did this, he laid hold on the dragon. As he's holding on to it, John saw the devil and this angel. And he describes in verse 2 the character of the devil. Now, I want to tell you tonight, you get, a, you get a sinking deep down in your heart. He has a nefarious character. He is the personification of all evil. He's nefarious. He is crooked. He is evil. He is wicked. Notice what he says here. He's called the old serp, the dragon. Anything having to do with the dragon is bad. It's large. It's hideous. It's scaly. It's fearful. It's malevolent. He says the dragon. And by the way, it's interesting how almost all cultures have some kind of a dragon in their culture. The Chinese have a dragon in their culture. It's amazing how many cultures have a dragon in their mythology and things. He's called the old serpent because if he could trace back to Genesis chapter 3, he's deceptive, he's deceitful, he's devious, and he's dangerous. He's old because he's got every trick up his sleeve. He's called Satan. Satan means adversary. That means he's your enemy. He's called your adversary or Satan, the devil. He's called the devil, which means the accuser. The accuser is talking about the fact he's an accuser of the brethren there, okay? His character is mentioned. Now, God wants us to see that before he's held captive, he doesn't want you and me being sympathetic to God laying hold of him. You know, there's something going on in our world today that kind of very bothers them to me, and people having sympathy for criminals. Now, I'm going to be real honest with you, and I know this is not live street. I don't have sympathy for criminals. Amen. I don't have sympathy for child molesters. I don't have sympathy for murderers. I don't have sympathy for people violent crimes, those who do property damage. I don't have sympathy for that stuff. He's a, he's, his character is mentioned. And you notice he's being, being bound. And I want to remind you tonight, Satan was defeated at the cross. But though he was defeated at the cross, He's getting the first phase of his punishment right now in the millennium. We see Satan's character, but God kind of embeds in this Satan's crimes. Because you have to remember, 
Satan was created it's the highest of the angelic beings. Now go back to a message I preached a few months ago from Isaiah chapter 14 about Lucifer. He goes from being Lucifer to becoming Satan. He was a bright and shining angel, a beautiful angel. But he had a number of crimes, and foremost of those crimes, he rebelled against God. He wanted to lead, he wanted to lead a revolt against God. And he has been on the loose Kind of like that dog that our staff members saw. It was on the loose. And uh, when it's on the loose, it needs to be brought captive. And he has some crimes. He has a multiplicity of crimes. You say, why are you telling us about that? We already know that. I know you know that. But you need to be reminded of that tonight because we are in a spiritual war. He is a criminal that's on the loose. He is a liar from the beginning and the father of all lies. Jesus said, there is no truth in the devil. You better be scrupulous. When you read all the junk that's on the internet, you better remind yourself, how does it match up with the truth of God's word? He is a murderer, and he's a murderer from the beginning. Let me get your blood boiling. The first murder in the Bible was when he had Cain murder his own brother Abel. Right there in the beginning of Genesis there. He's the instigator behind all abortions. He was the instigator for the murder of all those baby boys in, 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 uh, down there in Bethlehem. He was the instigator of all those baby boys that were thrown into the Nile River by the Egyptian Pharaoh. He was the instigator of the murder of John the Baptist, of the Jews during the Holocaust. The martyrs saints throughout the ages, and foremost, the greatest murder of all, was instigating and inspiring the murder of our Lord Jesus Christ. Read 1 Corinthians 2. He's a liar. He's a murderer. He's a thief. He's the thief that steals your joy. He's the thief that steals your, your happiness. He's the thief that steals your prayer time. He's the thief that steals everything that's good. A thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. He's a robber of peace. He's a robber of happiness. He's a robber of satisfaction. Listen, he's the one that comes in and puts a wedge between a husband and wife. You say, well, how can we always blame the devil for everything? Because you ought to blame the devil for everything. He's the cause of all that. He's a deceiver. I hate deceivers. I hate people that dupe me. I'm a trusting person by nature, probably too trusting. Too accommodating. And I hate it when I get duped. I hate it when I get deceived. But I always have to remind myself that it's because the devil is a deceiver. He's the author of lust. He's the instigator. He goes, he's the author of all covetousness. Listen, he, I can say so many things about it. He's a slanderer and a defamer. He's the one who instigates people to say bad things about other people. He's a blasphemer against God. Everything I talked about today, about Rabshaka, everything he said, that's the devil talking about those things and speaking against God. He's the one that tells you God is not able. He's the one that tells you God has failed you. He's the one that tells you God has failed you and the church has failed you. He's the instigator of rebellion behind hatred. Listen, behind every child molestation, all drug trafficking, human trafficking, rapes and crimes of heinous nature, 
The devil's behind all that. I remind you today, he's the father of covetousness. He's the inspiration between behind good being called evil and evil being called good. He's the one who snares us into the gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. He's the one who's a destroyer. He's the, he's the, he's the one who drowns men in destruction and perdition. He's filthy. He's foul. He's nasty. He's proud. He's arrogant. He's the personification of all pride. Everything that we read about him in, in Isaiah chapter 14 is about his pride. Listen, the greatest sin, every one of us, we struggle with, and you ought to be honest enough to say you struggle with, and I struggle with, and you struggle with, is the sin of pride. Why? Because that was the same sin that Satan struggled with. We have the same problem in our society today, the pride of race, the pride of grace. I'm an independent Baptist, but I don't top my feathers about making myself, acting like I'm better than somebody. Listen, we cannot be giving off an elitist attitude about who we are. And even some things I'm reading right now, thank God for pastors that have, have, are defying the law and they're obeying God. And they've opened up for in person, they're taking that little bit of risk and they're willing to, uh, to, to accept the fact they could re be receiving fines of $1,000 a day, both personally as well as the church. And thank God for churches that are following the faith, their pastors saying, we're going to, going to do that and they're risking imprisonment. But when we get to the point where we do that thing and we get, to, we get our attitude out there like, well, I'm the only one that's doing that. I'm the only one that's bowed my knee. I remind you tonight, there's 7,000 that haven't bowed their knee as well. And I remind you tonight, it's not for our business to get up there and say, well, how come? Well, you know, I'm better than everybody. You're not better than everybody. We're all sinners saved by the grace of God. And I remind you tonight as we get in this passage, we see, this, we see Satan who is a criminal. We see Satan in his character. But notice if we see verse 3, thank God Satan is captive. Amen. And here we've got, we've got an old dog catcher. He's, a, he's an old dog catcher. He's an angel. We don't know his name is. But he's got the key in one hand. He's got a chain in the other one. And he's going out. He's going out looking for this animal that's on the loose. He's the wildest animal that's ever been on the loose. And his name is Satan. And he's going to go after him. He's going to get hold of him. The Bible says in verse 2, he's going to lay hold of him. He's going to put the chain on him. And notice in verse 3, the Bible says he's going to cast him to that bottomless pit. There's that day coming. We need to rejoice and be thankful. God's going to take him. And you can say, well, why, why is he in the bottomless pit for? Well, notice verse 3. He says he cast him into the bottomless pit. You know, God could have done himself. God didn't waste his time. He said, I'm going to send an angel down. I just want to show you you're, you're not as strong as you think you are, Satan. And he cast him in the bottomless pit and shut him up. I like that phrase. Amen? He shut him up. Close the door and says, we don't want to hear from you. I'm tired of hearing your voice. I'm tired of you coming up and coming up with those, those demons and you're blaming Job. You're blaming everybody else. You're talking bad things about it. He says, I don't want to hear from you. No, I'm going to shut you up. He put a seal on him that he should not, that he should not deceive the nations no more till the thousand years be fulfilled. The bottomless pit. Description of a teenager who's got a voracious appetite. Amen. No, he's in the abyss. It's a place we won't mess with anybody for 1,000 years. He's captive under the restraint of a chain in a bottomless pit that he cannot escape from. Let me just say a thought here. Those who hold to an amillennial position one of, the, one of the things right here in Scripture that punches a hole deeply into their theory 
Because they think that Satan's already bound. He's not bound. He's running loose. And if he is bound, he's on a mighty long chain, amen? He's not bound right now, but he will be bound. You might think of it this way. The bottomless pit is like, he's already been, he's already been found guilty of his crimes. And they're putting him, God's putting him into a holding cell waiting to put him in the federal penitentiary for the rest of his life. The federal penitentiary for Satan, as we'll see later on, will be the lake of fire. Satan is bound. Satan's restrained. Before Jesus establishes his kingdom on earth, Satan needs to be restrained. Now let me tell you, Satan bothers us. He hinders us. But thank God there's a day coming. He's going to be restrained. He's going to feel that long chain that God's going to put on him. He's going to be bound with the chain he cast in that bottomless pit. He's going to sense how powerless he is because he's met his match. He met his match at the cross when, God, when Jesus died on the cross and he canceled Satan's power. And I want to tell you tonight, you can cancel Satan's power by the very fact you can come under the blood of Jesus Christ because the Bible tells us over there in Revelation chapter 12, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. You don't have to be afraid. You can stand courageous in Jesus Christ, knowing by under his blood and by the word of your testimony, he's a defeated foe each and every time. Satan's restraint. Notice, secondly, the Savior's reign. Let's look at the millennium now. Now, John already knew about the millennium. And he gives us a glimpse, but the Lord did that purposely because he's already talked about the millennium through all the Major minor prophets. And he doesn't need John to repeat it here because as he's writing this, he's given us the whole word of God. So I'm going to try to fill in some of those blanks and give you a summary tonight about the Savior's reign because we have to remember now that the millennium is about the Savior's reign. I'm going to say this statement. The millennium is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about his kingdom on earth. There's no more elections. No more need for city governments in that sense because God's got his own people he's going to put over that. That's you and me, assuming you're faithful. Now, let's remember tonight, there are many verses of Scripture that sometimes we pass through that we, we kind of just read very quickly that talk about the Savior's reign that we need to revisit. I'm going to give you a few that might be in your notes tonight. Isaiah 9-7. Now we're familiar with Isaiah 9-6, but I want you to look at chapter 9, verse 7. Chapter 9, verse 6 talks about his first advent. I've preached about this before. Verse 6 preached about his first advent, but verse number 7 preaches about his second advent and his millennium. Listen to what it says. And of the increase of his government, when's his government? Millennium. And peace. And peace, that describes, and you'll see this in a moment, that describes the millennium peace. He says, thank God there shall be no end. Amen. The millennium of his government and of his peace, there shall be no end. I'd love to have a government where there's no taxation. Amen. I'd love to have a government where there's no tariffs. And some crazy bunch of people that add to the sales that they find all these ways to tax you. They try to slip it under the radar screen there. I like to think of a government where we don't have to worry about telling our neighbors to pick up after themselves and not leave their garbage all over the yard, amen? And it says, upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom. And that's a fulfillment of Psalms 110. 
to order it and to establish it. Notice this. This kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is a kingdom of righteousness, of justice, of structure. I mean, it's organized. It's well set. He will establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, he says, will perform this. Notice Isaiah 60, verse 21. Thy people also shall be all righteous. Now it gets ahead of myself a little bit. But the people of the Melito kingdom will all be righteous. They shall inherit the land, notice this, forever. The branch of my planting the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. Listen to Jeremiah 23, 5, what he says. He talked about Jehovah's Sidkenu. He says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch and a king, and he shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. Here, I like Daniel 2, 44. One of my favorite chapters I've loved preaching from in the past has been Daniel chapter 2, and I need to preach it again. But notice what he says here. In Daniel 2, 44, as he looks at this, this, uh, this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had of this great image and, uh, and, the, and, the, and the makeup of this image, he says, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. When's that? That's the millennium. A kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. I think Jesus, when he was teaching the disciples that prayer in Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11, when he said, Thy kingdom come, I believe Jesus was envisioning these very words that were penned by Daniel, that were given by the inspiration of God in Daniel 2.44. Listen to Luke chapter 1, verses 32 to 33. The angel Gabriel comes down, and he gives an announcement to Mary. And I'm going to remind you, whenever an angel gave an announcement, it wasn't just like a, like a telegram. Listen, he gave a message. He gave a sermon. Listen, when you come to church, you don't come to church. You don't come to a club meeting for a sermonette. You don't come there for a little cute devotion. And even though sometimes we use the word devotion, you come to get preached to. You come to get the word of God. You come to get your, your soul set on fire. You come for God to do something great and mighty in your soul there. An angel came down, that little virgin girl that was 16 years old. She's all scared and, and did not really know, understanding what's going on, but she understood enough. I mean, he talked about some deep things of God, but she understood what was going on there. And he said this in Luke 1, verses 32 to 33. He shall be great. By the way, he is great. Amen. And shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him, notice this, the throne of his father David. He shall reign over the house of Jacob. How long? Forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Next time you preach or teach something about Christmas, don't leave that part out. That's what Gabriel told Mary. The Savior's reign. Now what will his reign be like? Number one, it, a reign of peace. A reign of peace. He's talked about that, Isaiah 9-7. Let me give you a capsulization because time's running out. What kind of peace? Well, number one, wars will cease. Wars will cease. Look at Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. It says this, And he shall judge among the nations, shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Wars will cease. Wildlife will be civil. Okay, wildlife will be civil. Listen, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the young lion, the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. That'll make for a great VBS time, amen? 
The cow and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together. Can you imagine that? Wildlife will be civil. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. There are no more carnivores. Amen. And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice's den. That's how peaceful and safe it will be. Wildlife will be civil. Wars will see. They watch this. Wildlife will be, no, no, wilderness will be sensational. Now, I love my friends down in Lancaster. And they try to make, they try to make that desert, Mojave Desert, sound nice. I don't know about you guys. I don't like deserts. Amen? I'm not enthralled with deserts. I like oceans. I like mountains. I like lakes. I like things that are green. Amen? Say, if you say amen, if you believe that. Amen? Now, you can spend your time down a desert looking for cockatrices and snakes and stuff like that. Not me. Amen? I like where it's green and blue. But the Bible says in Isaiah 35, wildlife will be sensational. You've got to imagine this in your mind. If you've ever been through a desert, you've got to imagine this. The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them. Listen, the desert shall rejoice and blossom. Listen to the description. It shall blossom as the rose. Now to envision that, you've got to go to a, a rose garden somewhere. And imagine an entire desert area that was once formerly sand blossoming beautifully as the rose. I had some friends that had a large flower business years ago that, used, that every, every year they'd go to Holland because they were experts. I mean, they'd start talking about flowers. They were way over my head. I had to have, have my wife tell me what they were talking about. But they'd go to Holland every year. And they, they would go there when the, the blossoming of, the, of the, the, the national flowers and things like that, and they would learn things from those, those horticulturists and people like that, and, and they would come back and build these beautiful botanical gardens, things like that. I mean, I want you to imagine with me that, that uh, maybe that flower, that flower setting there is exactly what the desert should be. Then notice Isaiah 35, verse 2. It shall blossom abundantly. And rejoice even with joy and singing, the glory of Lebanon shall be given unto. Now, we don't understand this, but Lebanon back in those days, the cedars of Lebanon, those were beautiful forests. That would be equated to going to our sequoia forest or John, the, John, the, the, Muir, the Muir Redwood Forest there. We've seen those high, towering cedar trees and the greenness that they gave. And they were wonderful places. And, and Lebanon was always pictured there. The cedars of Lebanon, their forests were always pictured as something very beautiful there. And he says, the glory of Lebanon shall be given unto him. He says, the excellency of Carmel. Hey, next time you read about Carmel and, uh, and, and Elijah and so forth, always remind yourself that it was a very lush place. It was a good place to where you would raise sheep. We read about that over in 1 Samuel 25 when we read about Nabal and David's men coming and surrounding that area. It was a very lush area. I mean, shepherds loved to take their sheep up there to graze. It was lush and green and very beautiful. It's kind of like our California landscape. After it rains, everything's so green and very lush. And it's a wonderful thing when you just can get out and see cows grazing and goats grazing and eating all that grass before everything turns brown. But the Bible says nothing will turn brown in that day. It says Lebanon shall be given up. Uh, Lebanon, it says, shall, the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. And the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. And they shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellence of our God. Hey, listen, wars will cease. Wildlife will be civil. Wilderness will be sensational. But listen to this. Worship, worship will be centralized. Jerusalem, the city of peace. The center of all worship. My highlight of my week, my highlight of my week and yours 
is the worship of God publicly with God's people. But get this, for 1,000 years, we'll be worshiping our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ there, centralized there in Jerusalem. That temple that Ezekiel talked about in Ezekiel 40, verses 48, the river's running through that. I want to give this thought about worship tonight real quickly before I move on. The Bible says in verse 2, And many people shall go and say, Come ye, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the work, word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Let me give you a thought here. On that day, there's no longer a struggle about worship styles. It's about the worship of Jesus. You know, more do we have to go on vacation, Brother Irwin, and be thinking about, well, this says Baptist Church, but I better call them up to find out. I don't know if they preach the King James Version. Or, Brother AJ, we know more we have to look up and say, I wonder what kind of worship style they have. Hey, man, it's the right worship style. It's biblical worship. Amen? It's biblical. You know, there's no question about that. I mean, there's no more question about that. There's no question about where our worship. Everyone's going to worship there at Jerusalem. By the way, Jerusalem's a mountain on a mountain, city on a hill. I can say this, it'll be a true mountaintop experience when it comes to worship. Amen? <clears throat> no longer will there be a fight for the right Bible. You know why? Because the living word is among us. That's what the Bible tells us later on. We have Jesus, the living word. The truth is walking among us. He is the living word there. What kind of rain? It'll be a peaceful rain. Notice the people of that kingdom. Verses 4 to 6 tells us, And I saw thrones, and they, they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the heads of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither received his image, and neither had received his mark upon their foreheads and in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Notice verse 6. Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and they shall reign with them a thousand years. But number one, when we get to that millennial kingdom where the Savior reigns, he's going to reign with peace. But listen, he's going to reign. He's going to have people in there. And those people are going to be people that are saved. Listen, he talks about, first of all, these are resurrected people. People participated in the first resurrection. Now, what is the first resurrection? There's two resurrections in the Bible. In John chapter 5, our Lord and Savior talked about resurrection. He talked about two resurrections. Daniel chapter 12 talks about resurrection. He talks about two resurrections. There's only two resurrections. Now, the first resurrection is in, you might say this, is in three phases. The first phase, and, and how, we, how we, we understand resurrection in the Bible, it's, it, it, the analogy would be using the, the, the symbol of a harvest. First of all, there's the first fruits of the first resurrection. We read over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Jesus Christ is the first fruits of that resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20, 23. He's the first with him. When he rose from the dead, the Bible says in Matthew, Matthew's gospel tells in Matthew 27 that there were some Old Testament people that came out of their tombs and they, they were resurrected too. They're part of that first resurrection. They're, they're part of what we call the first fruits. But then we call, the, we call the, the, the second phase the general harvest. And the general harvest we saw earlier in our study from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when the dead in Christ shall rise. The dead in Christ are all those after Jesus rose from the dead, those who were saved, but they predeceased us and have gone on, gone to glory. They're going to be raised before we get raptured. They are what we call the general harvest. There's the first fruits, there's the general harvest, but then there's the gleanings. 
Notice in verse 4, we see the gleanings. The gleanings are those believers who were martyred, those who got saved during the tribulation period and were martyred. They died, and their blood is crying out from the altar for the Lord to revenge them, and the Lord does. This group here is mentioned in verse 4. God is giving glory and honor and respect to those who gave their lives for the gospel message during that tribulation period. And he says, I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. And notice he describes it, which did not worship the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. They lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. They are the gleanings of this first resurrection. They're resurrected people. By the way, you said, you might ask, well, who's the second resurrection? We're going to see that in the next message. The second resurrection are all those who died without Jesus Christ as their Savior. They're resurrected people. As we read verses 4 to 6, they're reigning people. I wish I had time to elaborate on this, but you know what's going to happen here? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we study this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3 says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now, this is not a Bible word, but I'm going to use this term to describe it. The Lord privileges us who have been deemed faithful according to what I believe Luke 19 teaches on the parable of the pounds to be co-regents with him. And there will be believers who have been faithful to God who will be rulers over cities. doesn't matter how bad that city is today. Jesus is going to change that. Amen? There'll be rulers over those cities, a reigning people. The Bible says in verse 6, we shall be priests of God. We'll be allowed to be his spiritual representation in that city. Jesus told that faithful servant, I'm going to make you ruler over so many cities. He says he gave them thrones in verse 4. And judgment was given unto them. Now Jesus can rule over all that. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. But he gives that he delegates that down to those who are found faithful. If there's any incentive we can have for living for Jesus Christ and for winning souls, is that right there? It'll reign with peace. It'll reign with a special people. It's a reign with purity. We saw that earlier in one of the verses I read to you there about the reign of Jesus Christ. He says that the people also shall be righteous. But listen to these other verses about the purity of that kingdom. Isaiah eleven nine says, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Hey, listen, you know what? The great need of the gospel of this era is to get the gospel where the knowledge of the Lord fills the earth. But listen, what a wonderful thing during the millennium when the knowledge of the Lord, not just the gospel, the knowledge of the Lord covers and permeates and is possessed by every single person in the world. That is the golden age, Amen. That is the millennium. That is a great time. He says here, he says later on in Zechariah 13, 2, when it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that it will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered, and also will cause the prophets and the unclean spirits to pass out of the land. It'll be a reign with purity. It's going to be a reign of prosperity. You know, today people equate prosperity with the inflated prices of real estate. When the earnings report comes out and 
your stocks did good or your mutual fund did good or your ETF does good. That's not prosperity. Bible prosperity is millennium. Whatever prosperity is in this world, it's always cyclical. It's always cyclical. It's never fixed. In the millennium, prosperity is fixed and going up. What he says in Isaiah 12, 3, Therefore with joy, I like this, shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. Now there's practical application to that, but there's a millennial application to that. You know what that means? Every time you go to the well of salvation, you're always going to be drawing joy out of it. You might have a dry devotion every now and then, and it's not God's fault, it's your fault or my fault, amen? You might have a dry devotion, you might feel a little bit sluggish, you might feel like you're having a dry season in your, in your Christian life. They, we all have that. But thank God, in the millennial period, when we go to that well of salvation, and we're going to go to it many times, every time you draw something out, it's going to be joyful. You're going to look forward to getting something out of the Word of God. You're going to look forward to getting something out of your fellowship of the Lord. Therefore, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. I like what Ezekiel 34 says. He says, and I, will make them, uh, and I will make them in the places round about my hill a blessing. And I will cause the showers to come down in this season. There shall be showers of blessing. And the tree of the field shall yield her fruit. And the earth shall yield her increase. And they shall be safe in their land. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I have broken the, hands of the, uh, the bands of the yoke and delivered them out of the hand of those that serve themselves of them. Oh, listen, it's going to be a time of great prosperity. In the millennium, there are two classes of people. I want to say that before I get to the closing point. They're all of us who return with the Lord from heaven. And those martyred saints during the tribulation will be resurrected. But there'll be a class of people, and we don't know how large it is, it's not, not for us to know, who at the second coming or right before it, they repent of their sins. And they give their submission to our Lord. They're saved people, because only saved people, in, when the millennium starts, only saved people can enter the millennium. But these are people of literal, physical bodies. Please understand that tonight. They don't have entirely glorified bodies. They're unusually blessed because of that time. So when we read about this prosperity of fruit and things like that, and children, these people that will enter there will have longer lifespans than they would have normally had. They will marry if they're unmarried. They will have children. And all these things, these prosperities we're reading of, they will be beneficiaries of those things. I want you to park that in your mind. That's the Savior's reign. That's why, that's why, listen, that's why it tells us Jesus will rule his kingdom with a rod of iron and that's why you and I will be co-regents over these cities because these people are coming in and he has to keep things in check with these people because they still have part of their old nature with them and he wants to keep them in check. Now, I want you to understand, they're not going to cause trouble. 
There will be trouble at the end, but they're not going to cause trouble. But they're going to have children, okay? Now, we're going to see something about that, but what I want you to understand tonight, with all these populations of people that will be there, I want to understand one thing. It's a wonderful, wonderful place the millennium is going to be there. When you look at it, wars will cease, and wildlife will be civil, and worship will be centralized, and the wilderness will be sensational. I mean, everything you read about, you read in the Bible, it's all come together. It's the golden age of, Christi- of, of, of God's people there. So we see, the, we see this. We see Satan is restrained. We see the Savior reigns. But notice as we close tonight, we pull it all together. Notice we see the sinner's rebellion. Because now we get to verses 8 to 10, 7 to 10. God's not finished with his plan. Verse 7 says, and when the thousand years are expired. Now you say, why did Jesus choose the thousand years? Why is he doing this? Because he chose to. Satan will be let loose. Notice this, he'll be loosened out of his prison. He's let out of his holding cell for just a little season. He's had 1,000 years to think about a lot of things. You know, when you're in the doghouse, you have time to think about a lot of things. Amen? And I think for that 1,000 years, you know what's in his mind? When I get out, if I get out of here, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. And with a fury, the Bible says in verse 8, He shall go out and deceive the nations, which in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, that's the description, the four quarters of the earth. It's not talking about Russia here, just specifically. He's talking about Satan going throughout the world network, deceiving the nations. He said, wait a minute, who's he deceiving? Remember I just told you about that group of people who are saved towards that latter part of the tribulation. They enter the millennium. They're in submission. They're saved. But they're going to have children. And their children will have children. And as much as Jesus is being worshipped and it's all known by those who've entered the millennium, he's our Savior you have to understand something. Those children and grandchildren, whoever generations they may be, that are born during that millennial period, they still have to make a decision what to do with Jesus Christ. And the group that's deceived will be those generations down, those children and grandchildren, who will be deceived, who will rebel. It's kind of like today, please don't take this wrong. It's like today, there are fathers and mothers who hold very deeply to the fundamentals of the faith of Heritage Baptist Church. They believe what we preach. They've been here any length of time. Our belief system, our creed, our Bible, our practices have not changed. Times have changed. The Word of God has not changed. It's still preached the same as it was from the day this church opened. 
But they've had children. And their children are growing up in a different world with peer influences, educational influences, and all the other stuff going on. And the children don't necessarily grasp the faith of the fathers. Years ago, some preachers you would know if I mentioned their name, very well-established preachers, very prominent preachers, powerful preachers. We were in a discussion, and I felt like the new kid on the block, they're like, what am I doing in here, you know? Brother Adrian, it's kind of like the day I went there for interviews day at, at the college there. I had no idea what I was supposed to do. <laughs> Nobody told me. Dr. R didn't tell me a thing. I'm the only one with a bare table. <laughs> I didn't know what I was supposed to do there. And we had a very, there was probably about eight or nine of us there. We had a very intense discussion, a very broken-hearted discussion about second, third generation believers. <clears throat> I listened. I'd already came to some conclusion before this discussion even happened. And some of my good friends there, and they would be your friends too because they preach here. They said, why is it? Why, why is this happening? They're not embracing it. They're, they're going progressively in a different direction. And there were a lot of reasons, but I made this statement. I said, guys, if you don't mind me sharing this, and I said, I'm, I know I'm the new kid in the block, and you don't have to believe anything I say, but I'm a little bit more read up and studied than some of you guys are in this thing, because I've, I've read all the books on these things, even as a layman. And I said, I'll tell you very simply, there's one of many, but let me tell you one. That generation coming up does not embrace the faith of our fathers. They don't hold... They have, they have no connection to men like Dr. Lee Robertson and men like that. And I said, I could name off the names. I said, they have no connection to the fundamental pastors of the past. They have no connection to Dwight Moody or Charles Spurgeon. By the way, Charles Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon was he held to a millennial position as we do, a millennium position, when a lot of other theologians of his day were, were, were all millennial or post-millennial. And I said, part of their problem is they don't hold, they have no connection to that. And this generation during the millennium had no connection to, the, to God, what, what has happened there, the millennium. They have not made a decision of repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. And hence, even though the worship of God and is centralized in Jerusalem, their body might be there, but their heart is far from God. And the Bible says the devil goes out in verse 8 and he deceives them. And, he and the Bible says he went to gather them to battle. Listen, he deceived them to say, hey, listen, I'm going to start a rumble. I'm going to have a war. And I want you to join me. We're going to fight Jesus. And the number, my guys, listen to me tonight. Notice verse 8. The number assembled to battle. The Bible describes it. The number of whom is as the sand of the sea. 
There was a large number during the, at the end of the millennium that are, not, that are not on the same page with our Savior. They're the second and third generation. I'm going to preach to kids right now. You second and third generation Christians, somebody paid the price to give you the faith that you have right now. Somebody died and gave themselves. Somebody paid the price. Some went to jail. Some were ostracized by their friends. Some lost friendships along the way. Some were ridiculed. They were mocked. Read chapters, Hebrews chapter 11. Somebody paid the price. And listen, it was all hand presented to you. And you know what you do? You have a scorner's attitude and a sarcastic, cynical attitude about that. Let me tell you tonight, if you're not very careful, you've got two feet out the door instead of one foot out the door. They're deceived. And I'm going to talk to second, gen, third generation Christians today. You might be deceived right now. The devil's a liar. You say, well, that old fuddy-duddy Pastor Fong, he doesn't, he's not with it today. Maybe not according to your terms, I'm not with it, but I'm with what the Bible says. You're to be with what the Bible says and not what your friends say. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of ungodly. And I'm going to tell you tonight, if you've got some friends that are not in church, you're giving you advice, they're ungodly. You're listening to what the internet says, they're ungodly. You're listening to all these other games. You're hanging around some, some Christians that are not living for God. Let me tell you what tonight, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. You say, whoa, you're, you're telling me I've got a Christian friend that they're not living for God. Listen, and you're, you're listening to them. You're not listening to what your pastor It's just like what, just like Rav Shaka said. Rav Shaka said, hey, hey, don't listen to Hezekiah. Nor sitteth in the seat, he says, nor standeth in the way of sitters. You're standing in the same line, going the same direction, not realizing that, that the checkout at the end is a bad checkout. It's the sand of the sea. Together they went up, the Bible says in verse 9, to the breadth of the earth, encompassed the city of the saints about, and the beloved city... I mean, can you imagine how beautiful Jerusalem is? Can you imagine the center of worship? And Jesus sitting on his throne. They defied all the saints of God who are ruling over these cities. They said, we're going to bypass you. They've gotten together from the four quarters of the earth. They paid the plane ticket. They've gotten on a ship. They've made their way over there. They're all part of this conspiracy. They're basically saying, we're going to do battle. They've compassed Jerusalem. They said, well, we don't care what the history book said. We're going to go there. And the Bible says this. God's had enough because you know what God's going to do? God answers by fire. Don't forget that. God answers by fire. And the fire came down from God out of heaven. Devoured them. God said, I've had enough of this nonsense. You can be old Miss Beauty Queen looking yourself in vanity in the mirror, thinking how vain you are, and you've got more time for that than you have for getting beautiful by getting beautifying your soul, the word of God. Let me tell you, God's going to answer by fire. You can be Mr. GQ thinking you're cute, being all proud, thinking I'm Mr. Businessman, I'm Mr. This, I'm Mr. This and Mr. That, I do this and that. Listen, you get that way and have a rebellious spirit, God's going to answer by fire. And it's the children and grandchildren, these descendants. I want to challenge every young person today. I don't care how old you are. Listen, you've got some little kids watching, eight years of age. I want to challenge the next generation coming up. You make a decision. You're going to keep the faith going in Heritage Baptist Church. You're going to make a decision. You're going to hold to the doctrines. You're going to hold to the faith of your fathers. You're going to live for God. You say, well, my father's not live for God. Well, then follow the faith of your heavenly father. Amen. 
Stop looking at failed examples and look at the fact Jesus never fails. You get aside and have your family devotion. You tell your kids, let me tell you the faith that was fought. Let me tell you why we have a godly church. Let me tell you why we have a biblical church. Let me tell you why we preach salvation by grace through Jesus Christ. Let me tell you why we have an evangelistic church and why we have missions conference and why we tithe and how these buildings were built and what all that God is doing here. We need to stop this infighting and all this critical stuff there. We need to get on the same page and realize we need a millennial spirit. That millennial spirit of here in Revelation chapter 20 saying, listen, it's all about Jesus Christ. So look at how Jesus ends this millennial period. Number one, those counterfeit Christians, those counterfeit believers, they're devoured by fire. Now you know if you're counterfeit or not. You know if you've made a profession, but you don't have a possession. I said you've made a profession, but you don't have a possession. He that has not the Spirit of God, listen, if any man have not the Spirit of God, the, the, the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell. Listen, if you don't have the Spirit of God, you know if you have the Spirit of God living in you or not. God knows. There are a lot of pretenders during millennium. There may be a lot of pretenders in every church. It's time to stop pretending, get real with God. Secondly, verse 10. The devil that deceived them, God's had enough with him. And he used the word devil, the accuser. Because when he came, when he was let loose, he went around earth accusing God of being a liar and accusing Jesus of being a liar, accusing the saints of God who ruled those cities of being a liar. He said they're all wrong. He did with them as he did with Eve, and he got their minds all mixed up. And there were two things that came out of their mouth. Yea, as God said. The other one, well, if God did this, and if God let me do that, this is what we could do. And they started thinking about, oh, listen, maybe what we need to do is second, third generation. They got like the Canaanites over in Genesis 4. You need to study that. The Canaanites in Genesis 4, you know what they were thinking? Oh, listen, you know the world's got a lot of problems. We realize it may, that God says it's sin, but we think it's just social maladjustment. And so there came out some, a man by the name of Jubal. And Jubal came out and he says, you know what? I think we can solve the world's problems by changing the music. And Jubal became the father of all music. Listen, he became the father and instigator of worldly music against God himself. They think they can, serve, they can solve the world's problem. They said, let's solve the world's problem with music. Yeah, you, you try to solve with your rap music and your rock music and your country music. You try to solve with that. They said, well, we can solve it by industry. We can solve it by inventions. We can solve it by making men prosperous and making them millionaires and billionaires. We can solve it by having a socialistic government. By the way, that's where we're going. Man has been on a futile search where he's looking for a utopia where there's no peace and where there's no war. And I'm going to tell you right now tonight, it is not found in reform. It is not found in more government. It is not found in more man-made ideas. It is not found in humanism. It is not found in a university anywhere. It is not found in a vaccine. It is not found in the, favorite, the flavored author of the day. It's not found in changing the environment. It's not found in Greenpeace. It's not found in the government. It's not found in man man is. No, man has been looking for an idea, and that second, third generation of millennium is looking for an idea. They're looking for change. Let me tell you tonight, the answer is still Jesus Christ. 
Madden's not the answer. Government's not the answer. Printing more money's not the answer. Stock market's not the answer. Government's not the answer. All these utopian ideas, they're not the answer. Smoking marijuana's not the answer. Jesus Christ is the answer. He's still the answer. He's always the answer. He's the answer for salvation from sin. He's the answer for an unfulfilled and unsatisfying life. He's the answer for somebody that's bound up with sin. Your unhappiness is not because the church is bad. Your unhappiness is not because of something that you're unhappy is because there's sin in your life you've not confessed before God. He's the answer for discouragement and depression. He's the answer for people that are filled with fear and anxiety. He's the answer even if we're at the place of near death, a near-death situation. He's the answer. You know why? For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Blessed be the Lord and Father of our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which has begotten us again into a lively hope, but through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen, to an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the last time. How could you be afraid of heaven? How can you be afraid of being with your Savior for all of eternity? How could you be afraid of all that? Listen, that's the best thing that happened. Listen, our lifespan here is just so little time, but our lifespan with Jesus Christ is forever and forever and forever and forever and forever. So if he's still the answer, what do we need to do? Number one, number one, write this down, we're done. Number one, live in expectation. Jesus is coming soon. Number two, live with encouragement. We know how, the, how it's all going to end. Amen? We know how the future is going to turn out. Live with encouragement. The word of God cannot fail. God does not fail. He still answers prayer. Number three, be aggressively evangelistic. I said be aggressively evangelistic. Don't sit there week after week. Make a list of people that you know they're not saved. Get their names over on the prayer works line. Tell us who they are. Let's go out. Let's get some people saved. Last, let's examine our hearts. If you're a counterfeit, you better get saved tonight. He might come tonight. You doubt the word of God? You're cynical? You're covetous. Better examine your heart. Better examine your heart. Homebuilders class just heard a lesson from me just a little while ago about counterfeit Christians from Acts chapter 8. Preach that message in any church, a good number of congregations will feel very uncomfortable. Peter said, thy money perish with thee. Peter said, thou art in the gall of bitterness, and this is the bondage of iniquity. You're counterfeit. You better get saved. You young people think you're going to live forever. You better be careful. It's appointed men once to die, and after this is the judgment. Life is a vapor. I sat where you sat, you 16, 17, 14, 15, 21 years. I sat there. I, there my days back in those days, they're as real in my mind as there, but now I'm, I'm a little bit older than that, and I realize time is very short. It's a vapor. All life is like grass that fadeth away. You better live for God. You better live for God. 
Time is short. We didn't go through these prophecies for entertainment or for, or for mental edification. No, we're going through the prophecies because time is short. We need to be prepared. We better know what's going to happen. The saddest thing for most Christians, they're going to heaven. They don't even know what to expect in heaven. Man, you know more about your destination location of all the spots you're going to hit and places you're going to eat and where you're going to go. You know more about destination location for your vacation than you know about where you'll spend all of eternity with God. God, help our soul tonight. Amen? You're not saved tonight. You need to get saved. Now's the time. You need to go to the mission field. You don't need to wait to the missions conference. You need to go tonight. You say, oh, it's COVID-19. Jesus is over COVID-19. Let's have revival tonight. I like what Dean Miller said. The unfortunate thing with most churches, we have revival meetings, but we have very little revival. Satan restrained. The Savior reigns. The sinner's rebellion. My favorite part is the Savior reigns. Now, he's going to rule on earth, but tonight my question is, does he rule your heart? Is he on the throne of your heart? Does he have control?